Welcome, everyone. It is the first Friday in October, so it's time for Planetary Radio's Space Policy Edition. I'm Matt Kaplan, the host of Planetary Radio, particularly the weekly show that I hope you're all tuning into and enjoying. Thank you for that. I am joined by Casey Dreyer, the Senior Space Policy Advisor and Chief Advocate for the Planetary Society, with whom I have been co-hosting the Space Policy Edition for I've Lost Track. Years and years. five More than five years. <laughs> Going on five and a half years now. Hi, Casey. Hey, Matt. Happy to be here. And I guess this is, it's always, timing's a little awkward, but I guess this is our spooky Halloween edition of the Space <laughs> Policy Show. And we have an appropriately scary situation to discuss uh, congressionally with debt limits and potential government shutdowns and funding cliffs and all sorts of other uh, wild stuff happening in the U.S. Congress that will impact NASA. And to talk about that, we have our colleague, Brendan Curry, our chief of DC operations. So we will be discussing what is happening in DC later in this episode. Very much looking forward to hearing from Brendan in just a few minutes here. I guess, uh, you know, in space, no one could hear you scream. In DC, everyone can hear you scream. <laughs> and no one cares. <laughs> no one cares frequently. <laughs> it happens a lot. Oh, well, scary yeah. space kitties. I'm sorry you had to drop back into this maelstrom after having what certainly sounds like a wonderful vacation that included getting your scuba certification, which is something that I've had for a long time, though I haven't used it in a long time. So congratulations. Well, thanks, Matt. It's the most affordable alternative to flying into space right now <laughs> that I can do and get a sense of weightlessness uh, while underwater. And I actually had a really fun time doing that uh, with my wife. We went to Hawaii and we learned how to scuba. And really what I found really amazing was that you're at neutral buoyancy and you can inhale and exhale and you can control your presence or your uh, position in the Z axis. It's a very new way to think about navigating through space that you can control with your breath, which was just a very interesting way to engage with the natural world. And I saw some fish along the way. So something you probably <laughs> wouldn't see in space, hopefully, unless things go very wrong or very excitingly right, depending maybe on Europa, you'd see something like that. Uh, but yeah, it was great and very abrupt transition back to uh, things here. But of course, always fascinating to follow what's happening in space policy. You know, that is always what I've loved about being under the water. It's that sense of weightlessness and Oh, major sigh. I, I suppose it may be the closest you and I uh, get there. Maybe you have a better shot than I do, but I, I'm still keep I'm still keeping some hope uh, that we get to try that uh, way above our heads as well. Well, I was going to say I keep buying the weekly lottery ticket, and uh, <laughs> if I if I if it wins, you know, it's a non-zero. It's not a good chance, not even a bad chance. It's an awful chance, but it's a non-zero chance. Matt, if I pull that off, I will buy you a seat next to me on the next Blue Origin and Virgin Galactic flight. Just remember, Casey, our schools win too. <laughs> that's that's true. <laughs> yes. Yep. See, that's a selfless, that's my selfless act to uh, contribute to something like that. We used to laugh. That was a laugh line when I worked for a school district many years ago as well. Um, let's get on to the laugh lines coming out of uh, Washington. Well, you know, before we do that, something very serious, but very fun. Please, if you have not already, you're listening to this show. I hope you're enjoying it. 
planetary.org slash join is where you can uh, help us uh, create it, help us pay for it by becoming a member of the Planetary Society. And uh, it's easy to do. We have lots of levels. We have wonderful plans ahead of us and tremendous accomplishments behind us. You can directly support the terrific work that uh, Casey and Brendan and others of our colleagues are doing across the world and most definitely in Washington, D.C. I highly recommend it. I'm a member and I know Casey is too. That's true. And I uh, will support that, Matt, and also make a plug for the monthly Space Advocate newsletter to sign up to get a, a new summary of all the great things happening in space policy and politics and an essay by me. Again, I always love reading and engaging the feedback I get from members in reaction to that newsletter. So that's it. just Google Space Advocate newsletter. It'll be one of the top hits from the Planetary Society, or you can follow the link in the show notes to this month's episode. All right, let's get to what's going on. Uh, you know, in this week's uh, weekly show, the one that premiered just a couple of days ago as, uh, as this show is published, uh, I had to catch myself because I was uh, introducing Kathy Leader's as the associate administrator of a directorate at NASA that doesn't exist anymore as of only <laughs> a few days ago. No worries about Kathy. She is also the associate administrator of a brand new directorate. Uh, give us the lowdown. Yeah, I was just thinking in my head as you were introducing this, how many other government agencies get breathless podcasts based on their <laughs> organizational restructuring <laughs> but but this made the, it, it, this is kind of this is important i think understanding how the bureaucratic state and the administrative state work to advance these types of goals is something worth paying attention to and in this case we're looking at how nasa organizes itself to pursue various aspects of human spaceflight. What happened, so we saw this kind of surprise announcement somewhat out of the blue from Bill Nelson and from NASA saying they had a big announcement to make the next day. And what it was is that they are splitting up what's known, or what was known as the Human Exploration and Operations Mission Directorate, HEOMD. And maybe just to step even further back, directorates at NASA. These are basically the largest organizational constructs of NASA's bureaucracy. There's a science directorate called SMD, the Science Mission Directorate. There's the Space Technology Mission Directorate, STMD. In these big programs, they have all of the sub-programs that kind of grouped by behavior, right? So in SMD, the Science Mission Directorate, they have Planetary Science Division, they have Astrophysics Division, all, you know, they go to a division level, and that's the divisions that then pursue these various mission projects. So HEOMD, Human Exploration and Operations, was this very big chunk of NASA's, almost half of NASA's entire budget at this point. And as the name implies, exploration and operations, the person sitting at the top, Kathy Leaders, and, and before that, Bill Gerstenmeier, managed both the implementation, the active operations of basically the International Space Station, and active development of future programs. In this case, particularly the SLS, Orion, uh, Gateway, and, and Artemis-related human spaceflight programs. Development and operations are two very different needs. Operations is really about maintaining. You've done the hard work of engineering, of designing and building something, of assembling it, and now you're into the 
let's use this and maximize the value we get out of it, right? Development is something that takes roughly 90% of the entire budget of a project in its lifetime mm. is figuring out what it will look like, how to make it, making it, fixing all the bugs and weird things and just making, putting it into space. The operations tend to be much cheaper. Uh, there's a different set of problems, of course, but development's really a different set of engineering approaches. TOMD, as we know it, is only about 10 years old. It was formed in the aftermath of the cancellation of the Constellation program in the early 2010s under the Obama administration. Constellation being NASA's first effort in the 21st century to return humans to the moon. Uh, you had an exploration division, and then you had a space operations division, two separate directorates uh, at that point doing basically ISS and then Constellation. End of Constellation, there was functionally no long-term human exploration project anymore. And so NASA decided to merge those two directorates together into this catch-all HEOMD. Now, of course, with Artemis really kicking up and with really hitting into these periods of peak development for the gateway, for the human landing system, the first development and operational tests of the SLS and Orion, they decided that this is, in a sense, or Bill, Bill Nelson feels uh, decided this is too big of a project for one person to manage and to split these back out basically to what they used to be, to a separate exploration systems development directorate and into a space operations mission directorate. Kathy uh, Leaders will maintain space operations, so the space station, commercial crew, commercial cargo, and then Jim Free, this uh, previously director of NASA Center um, and who had retired a few years ago, will be taking over as the associate administrator, is what their names are, of the new exploration systems development one. That's the, the kind of the reasoning and the history and why this is important is that now Kathy Leaders will be able to focus very much on operations at the space station, maximizing its use and working with commercial crew. And then we have the new exploration systems to really just focus on development. And so it kind of cuts down the bureaucratic responsibilities for the individuals at the top and their top lieutenants and supporters. In a practical sense, what will this mean? Is this going to be basically transparent for uh, as we look at Artemis uh, going into high gear and uh, that collaboration with, uh, with other nations? I mean, do any other nations, any other partners have reason to be concerned? No, this is all going to be very much under the hood. Uh, restructuring of NASA. The the external engagement will be very much the same. Really, the, the only real shift that'll happen will be, again, internally, because now when the budget process goes through, when NASA is developing its own budget proposal that it then tries to get approval from the White House for, that then it ultimately submits to Congress, now human spaceflight will be you have two uh, divisions of human spaceflight actually kind of jockeying for their funding priorities with each other in addition to the other big directorates, right? So, and this doesn't necessarily fundamentally change, right? There may have been internal jockeying just at a lower level, right, between the exploration and, and operations side. A way to step back and think about this, the value of having internal bureaucratic structures devoted to certain NASA operations, science, human exploration, human uh, space operations, bureaucracies at a certain level, one of the things they're very good at is maintaining themselves, right? Persistence in themselves. And that can actually be turned into a very good thing if you want what they do to also persist, right? So you have 
created a system of internal advocates for their operations because they want to keep their prioritization. They want to do well. They want to keep their own people doing these types of things. And so now you've kind of split out operations for human spaceflight from exploration. Again, this is somewhat theoretical here, but you could see that there could be a more muscular self-representation by either the spaceflight operations side or the exploration side. That could result in more, you know, potentially more resources for exploration or for, you know, it's just they've split up in a sense the internal jockeying and internal political system that they can speak for themselves in a more focused way. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just it, it creates that tension that may not have existed at such a high level before. And it's nothing new. I mean, this is true yeah. in any organization or reorganization that um, you know might end up with uh, two entities where there once were was one. Uh, it's perfectly natural. Kathy leaders will be able to focus on uh, making sure that everything keeps running uh, well, and we, we've got lots of new systems that uh, are going to be handed off to her over the coming years as uh, we head back to the moon and hopefully Mars. There was some worry on from some of the in the space community that this is a demotion for Kathy Leaders, uh, but she's still an associate administrator, which is about as high up as you get in the NASA hierarchy before you're really into the very top level administrative suite. There's also some concern that bringing in a somewhat unknown individual to run the exploration systems compared to Kathy Leaders, who had done this very, who had led basically the, NASA's commercial crew project, right? This very new way of doing business style of NASA, of the public-private partnership, that this new person coming in, Jim Free, doesn't have as much experience. There's, he's not as much of a known quantity about really promoting those types of contracting agreements, private uh, participation, and perhaps a worry out there that he will bring back more of a cost plus give contractors mm. whatever they want structure. I think mm -hmm. those at the moment are, are unfounded. We just don't have really any data to say one way or another. Plus, a lot of the major efforts in the exploration program now, Gateway, Human Landing System, the human spacesuits, they're already being procured through these public-private partnerships. It's unlikely he will just, as a stroke of a pen, undo any of those. And so a lot of those have already been baked in. And we will see what he brings to the table in terms of priorities so I think it's 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 not necessarily a negative consequence. It's a very reason, as we say, it's a kind of a reversion back to the mean at NASA for having two separate directorates focused on exploration and, and human operations. Let's uh, move on to another topic as we prepare to uh, bring in Brandon Curry. We've also talked recently on uh, the weekly show about the expected uh, release of the uh, Planetary Science Decadal Survey now expected in spring of 2022. But there are other decadal surveys, and you've been looking at uh, a more imminent one, or the astrophysics survey. Astrophysics survey is supposed to come out sometime this year. I feel like it's Duke Nukem forever, uh, always in promise <laughs> production. Um, it keeps being indefinitely delayed. At some point, it has to come out. Again, the decadal survey, big effort by the science community through the National Academies of Sciences to put together a formal set of priorities for the next decade in every NASA science division, in this case, astrophysics. Again, we're waiting. We, of course, will dive into that uh, report when it comes out. It's stated, I think the latest I've heard is just fall of 21, which we are in now, and we have rapidly diminishing number of months left in fall 21 to get through. 
one of the consequences of this delay that I think is worth considering is it at this point is coming out late enough that it will no longer influence NASA's budget request for the upcoming fiscal year. Hmm. So NASA has to plan a year in advance for the request, which then Congress eventually adapts and funds the following year. So it's always a little hard to keep track of, but NASA is working internally now on its 2023 fiscal year request, which will be released sometime in February and ideally be approved by Congress sometime next September. So we're working almost a year in advance. However, without the guidance of the Astrophysics Decadal Survey, we will not have this official scientific community's priorities reflected in that request. So that's an, another year of, I believe this was originally supposed to come out last year. So this is two years now of, of that decadal period, 20%, without that guidance. Now, to some degree, this is a moot point because of the overwhelming presence of the James Webb Space Telescope effort and the effort to try to follow the priority of the previous decadal survey, the Roman Space Telescope, originally W first, which is now moving into full production and consuming roughly a third of the entire astrophysics budget every mm. year. We just had news that because of COVID and, and other problems that the project now won't launch until 2027. So again, really towards the end of the next decadal period anyway. So we're actually hitting a, a number of backlog issues that are really going to constrain what NASA and the scientific community are able to do in this upcoming astrophysics decadal period of, of the 2020s. just wanted to acknowledge that this is one of the weird kind of second or third tertiary effects of the COVID pandemic is the delay of these types of reports has these delays in terms of budgeting and can delay other major projects that at the end of the day will severely curtail or limit the possible ability, you know, the ability to address these top scientific priorities. It's not a very happy piece of news, I suppose, but it's it's something that's worth paying attention to, really trying to understand how the gears of these systems work and why things do or do not happen. In this case, a delayed report can actually have a pretty serious consequence 10 years down the line. And of course, uh, we are looking forward to finally the launch of the James Webb Space Telescope, now scheduled uh, for December 18th. I, I am told that it is on its way down to the launch site in French Guiana, where it will um, head into space on top of an Ariane 5 rocket and then spend the next month and a half, two months, ah, fingers crossed, uh, actuating all those things to, uh, <laughs> that have to unfold and and drop into place and work perfectly uh, so that we can have this uh, very powerful follow-on to the uh, Hubble Space Telescope and other space telescopes. I believe our colleague called that the 45 days of terror. Yes. That right. will... <laughs> and <laughs> I've heard be... people I've heard people in the project call it pretty much the same thing. Yeah, it's going to be a nail biter over Christmas and New Year's this year to make sure everything's working right. But it's kind of amazing to say, as we're recording this, there is an $8 billion telescope on a boat right now going down <laughs> to French Guiana to be prepared for that launch. And I know that they were, there's a great article, I think, by Marina Cohen at uh, The Atlantic talking about how they had to secretly do this to avoid 
pirates uh, who might, I don't know what they would do with an $8 billion telescope, but uh, nothing good, probably, <laughs> if you had pirates attack that boat. So there's all sorts of security and, and secrecy around this that are required to ship something so I mean, it cost $8 billion, but it's an irreplaceable object, right? Yeah. It is a priceless yeah. object at this point. So it's exciting to see this actually start to happen. I feel like maybe this is the real Duke Nukem Forever moment that this has been finally <laughs> going to be released. Hopefully the outcome will be a slightly more positive experience. Don't worry, it's all going to work. That 100 and something single points of failure uh, on the JWST, it's all going to work. I have faith. I also have faith in our colleague, Brendan Curry. And, Good segue. <laughs> uh, I, I think we're ready to, uh, to bring him in. Let's bring him in. Let's bring in Brendan. We will go into all of the stuff that's happening in Congress right now, how it relates to NASA, and we'll see if we can work through what we can expect. Brendan Curry will join us in less than a minute. Hi again, everyone. It's Bruce. Many of you know that I'm the program manager for the Planetary Society's LightSail program. LightSail 2 made history with its launch and deployment in 2019, and it's still sailing. It will soon be featured in the Smithsonian's new Futures exhibition. Your support made this happen. LightSail still has much to teach us. Will you help us sail on into our extended mission? Your gift will sustain daily operations and help us inform future solar sailing missions like NASA's NEA Scout. When you give today, your contribution will be matched up to $25,000 by a generous society member. Plus, when you give $100 or more, we will send you the official LightSail 2 Extended Mission Patch to Wear with Pride. Make your contribution to science and history at planetary.org slash S-A-I-L-O-N. That's planetary.org slash sail on. Thanks. Brendan, my colleague and chief of our DC operations here at the Planetary Society. Uh, thanks for taking a break out of what seems to be a relatively calm and staid period in Washington, D.C. <laughs> to uh, talk to us. Well, Casey, it's always good to talk to you and Matt. And as I uh, set down my uh, cup of tea and just enjoy classical music behind me, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it's, it's, been a, it's been a certain interesting uh, situation right now over the past several months in Washington, that's for sure. So let's try to work through the this is a complex situation because there are rough for I think from my count about four, maybe even five arguably pieces of legislation that are up in the air that at one level or another all are going to interface with NASA funding and even funding more broadly for other space issues. And let's just say this is going to be somewhat topical. So we're recording this on the last day of September. October first is the fiscal new year. Let's maybe address the most pertinent issue first. We need some sort of legislation authorizing the U.S. Treasury to spend money in the new fiscal new year on October 1st. We don't have that yet as we're recording this. So this context, what would you, what's this particular piece of legislation that we're concerned about? I'm assuming you're asking about an appropriations vehicle that's euphemistically called a continuing resolution, also known as a CR. And what that does, Casey... It basically takes everything in discretionary spending from the current fiscal year and just keeps all the government departments and agencies on track at their current fiscal spending measure. Right now, it's looking like that could last until very early December. I've talked with folks who think that it could drop 
or extend into early mid-March. And I've talked to some other folks that say they're game planning for a year-long CR. And now normally a CR, everyone in the space business gets gets a little cranky about that because it's it means, quote, no new starts. So if there's a, a space project that was expected to get funding in the new upcoming fiscal year, that's all on hold. That said, a lot of uh, the lobbyists from the uh, space industry folks that I work with, considering all the unpredictability they've their company and their co-workers in their workforce and their suppliers and subcontractors have had because of the virus actually a cr isn't considered as bad as it normally would be because it simply provides some modicum of predictability they can tell their assembly line folks their suppliers etc 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 Situation normal, just do what we've done for the past fiscal year. You all still have a job. Supplier A, we need 100 widgets from you still. Supplier B, we need 100 widgets from you. And it provides some modicum of stability. And uh, that's really needed right now is is what I'm finding out. So the, the point of having a CR in the if you have a CR in the context of a global pandemic, that's actually not the worst thing. I guess that's what it took for a CR to not be a, the worst possible thing. Well said. Yeah. The uh, well. So and just to make it clear, so the CR is this, it's this temporary extension. Right now, it looks like maybe to December third. They have the option of continuing to extend it. This is not unusual. We've gone through this the last few years. I don't know if we got this close to the cutoff limit, but usually it. Frequently, it's been the right final appropriations. Yeah, well, frequently, it's been the, the final appropriations finally get passed in December. Uh, yeah. So months into the fiscal year, if not later. And so this is not unusual. But what's been unusual is that it's been we're, we're hours away from the government having to shut down. And that's the consequential thing. We talked about this on a episode of Space Policy Edition a few years ago when the government shut down and contractors that you were just talking about, they had to lay people off because they weren't getting their contract funding coming in from the government. They had no cash to cover uh, labor and other overhead costs. It was very damaging and disruptive. And so no one really likes to have a shutdown, uh, obviously. And so it's good to see this may get us through, at least to push that clip off. So that's not the worst thing. The only thing I do kind of worry about in a year-long CR might be the uh, NEO uh, surveyor mission, which is getting a new start this year in the budget. They might be able to move some money around for that since it seems quite popular, but there are some consequences. Conversely, you can't cancel missions in the CR either, right? So that would be Sophia would continue, uh, which is up for cancellation this year as well. So you can't start or stop programs in a CR. Yeah, it, it's a really mixed bag. And what everyone has had to endure over the past year or year plus, I should say, I've never thought in my life being in DC for over 20 years that people were simpatico with the notion of a CR that could go a year long to give uh, our audience an idea of the depth and breadth of the situation we're looking at. It's a situation that I have not seen before. And the other thing is 
is that if we did have a, a government shutdown, and we've we've had them sadly almost routinely since the mid '90s, if we had a shutdown right now, it would be historic in terms of you had one party in charge of the White House, the Senate, and the House of Representatives. Mm-hmm. In the prior shutdowns, you had one party controlling the executive branch. You had another party controlling the legislative branch. That's propelling the uh, immediacy of trying to avert that right now within the next few hours. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and I think even uh, for the space angle too, a shutdown would impact preparations of the launch of the Lucy spacecraft right now down at Kennedy Space Center, which has a... A three-week window, but that's uh, you don't want to lose days unnecessarily to launch something into space. So there are real consequences of this uh, from a very practical space level, not to mention just at the broader contract disruption of planning and also just taking up people's time and attention away from focusing on the actual work uh, of getting things <laughs> to go into space. Casey, you and I have always joked about the fact that uh, orbital mechanics doesn't care about the congressional schedule. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately, it doesn't go on pause uh, when the when Congress does. So, okay, so that's the CR. We Mm -hmm. seem to be that seems to be at the time we're recording this. Looks like it'll be doing okay. There's two other big pieces of legislation that I think we need to treat kind of as a unit. One of them will have money for NASA. The other one doesn't. So we're talking about the infrastructure and the reconciliation bills. These are two bills that are large parts of President Biden's domestic agenda includes a lot of democratic issues. But from what you kind of alluded to, I think the reason that we're having such an uncertainty around both of these is that even though the Democrats control both houses in Congress and the presidency, they have a very, very, very narrow majority, like as narrow as it gets in the Senate, right? You have 50 plus one of the vice president vote. So corralling everyone on exactly the same page, that's the tough part for what is I'd say arguably quite an ambitious domestic agenda, right? This, these are kind of big things they're trying to pass with these bills. But let's just touch on the NASA aspect. There's nothing that I see, and correct me if I'm wrong, in the infrastructure bill. This is stuff for building roads and bridges and so forth across the country, which at the moment seems to have a relatively broad bipartisan support. The reconciliation bill, which gets its name from a, maybe you can correct me, it's some sort of, it's not necessarily, it's a bureaucratic leverage ability that a 50 vote majority can't be filibustered by passing some funding legislation. Yeah. The, uh, the reconciliation for our, our newer listeners, our existing listeners know I'm an old house guy. Reconciliation is kind of a, a legislative mechanism or vehicle that originates out of the Senate. And the Senate has these incredibly arcane and Byzantine parliamentary and procedural rules. And reconciliation is a vehicle to enable tax measures to be implemented, which means the tax writing committees in the House and the Senate have to find ways to pay for things. They are then passed over to various authorizing committees dealing with parts of the federal government that that said authorizing committees have oversight over, and I'm getting way into DC talk, and I apologize. I don't want to say it's a gimmick, but it, it's it's kind of like a, a break glass in case of emergency type of 
situation. Because it allows them to pass in the Senate. The filibuster you need at this point, it's so regular, you need basically 60 senators to agree to pass legislation by standard process in the Senate. And in a 50-50 Senate, the minority party can stop legislation if they want to, right? The tyranny of the yeah. minority, as it's called. <laughs> and so this has been used for a number of big pieces. I believe the Republicans used it to pass their tax legislation in 2017. Yep. I believe the Democrats used it to pass the uh, American uh, health care bill in uh, 2010. Yep. And so it's been, they can write things in a way to avoid filibustering, but there's only so many things that can fit in there. It usually has to deal with spending and taxation, as, as you said, right? Yeah, and, and part of the issue is, is that, there's been attempts to glom on other things to reconciliation, which for some reason, the Senate parliamentarian is like the most powerful person on, on the planet right now. It's <laughs> so they, they, they have, get to decide what counts, right? Like what, what they're the head ref on the field right now, making the call. It's excruciating on a variety of levels. The other thing is, is that it, it short circuits the appropriators and they're not happy about it. These are the people who usually fund the government on an annual basis that we're generally focused on here at the Planetary Society, the the appropriators, the co- CJS, our Commerce, Justice, and Science Subcommittee. Yes, yes. And, and as Casey, you and I have talked, you know, the House Appropriations Committee kicked out over the summer a CJS bill that included a really good NASA number. But the problem was the CJS, the J stands for the Justice Department. And there was a whole host of things regarding community policing and things like that, in which police departments get grant money and what's the metrics for why they deserve it. It's a political hot potato. And that's why CJS never made it to the House floor. And the Senate, they haven't even marked up their CJS approach bill. As you and I have talked, what I'm hearing is, is they may just post the Senate CJS approach bill, which includes NASA, not even have a committee markup just to essentially draw a line in the sand and take it from there. The reconciliation bill basically doesn't even address the normal appropriations. Right. So this is these are all new programs. And so and it's paired with this infrastructure bill for a political reason. Right. Again, it's trying to keep this very fragile very narrow caucus of, of the Democrats together, right? And a lot of people want, won't want vote for one unless they get the other one voted first and so forth and so on. But again, from a NASA perspective, what we're looking at here, there's nothing for NASA in this infrastructure package. However, in the reconciliation bill as written, which is, as you will, I'm sure say, is changing probably by the minute what could or could not be in that reconciliation concept. My understanding is that there's roughly $4 billion and change for NASA, right? There's $4 billion for Literal for ironically, there's no money for NASA in the infrastructure bill, but there's four billion dollars of infrastructure funding for NASA in the reconciliation bill, uh, which would actually be just wonderful for. And that's to be spent over ten years. That's a huge, basically doubling NASA's infrastructure account uh, over the next ten years. They get roughly three fifty, four hundred million a year for their infrastructure, general infrastructure account. So to double that would theoretically could do a lot for NASA's capabilities uh, on the ground. And don't forget, for our loyal listeners, the NASA administrator was a former senator and former member of the House, and he's severely aware of the infrastructure, the infrastructure problems at NASA centers. But being a 
being from Florida, Kennedy Space Center, you have these national assets that were built before I was born. A long time ago. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I think Matt at the time was, you know, probably in his big wheel or something like that. Uh, <laughs> Thank you, Sam. Apollo Thank era. you for that. Yeah, yeah I appreciate Apollo that. Apollo era infrastructure. Yeah. Right? We're talking about leaky roofs, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, it's, it's nothing exotic. And roads and, yeah. It's, yeah. It's, it's nothing exotic. It literally is making sure the VAB at KSC has a new roof type stuff. Yeah, the vertical assembly building, of course. If yeah. anyone wants to be a, a total hipster NASA budget person, like I, I consider myself, my favorite part is reading through the infrastructure section of the NASA budget request because it's just totally fascinating what they're asking from Because it's like exactly repairing roofs, replacing a road, repairing bridges, or like uh, with the VAB, taking out all the asbestos from the 1960s. It's that level of huh. stuff that we're talking about. And NASA is one of actually the largest owners of infrastructure in the federal government, despite being on the smaller side of a federal agency. I was talking with a, uh, a brigadier general, and he was saying the base that he's in, he has command over needs new water pipes. And he said, Big Air Force is telling him they don't have enough hangar space for their jets. So you're having uh, warfighter aircraft being left out into the elements those things are taking priority over something as mundane as sewage lines and things like that at Air Force bases. So it's not just NASA. So we're not, I'm not beating up on NASA or something like that. It, it's, a, it's a congenital problem with uh, government installations. And not just government, uh, not just federal government. We know <laughs> plenty of evidence that uh, infrastructure across the United States is desperately in need of repair, renovation. Uh, so, yeah, NASA is just one piece of this. Yeah, entropy, man. You just can't get around it. Yeah. The but and and so just going back to this reconciliation package that has been proposed. There's four billion dollars for NASA infrastructure. There's a few hundred million for I think climate science and a, some very pithy little amounts for a few extra you know, research areas and and oddly enough, five million for the Inspector General's office, which. Uh, kind of keeps NASA honest as an internal oversight for NASA activities and, and contracts. But originally you talked about Senator or Administrator Bill Nelson. He had actually asked for a lot more than $4 billion for NASA in this bill. This is a at the moment a $3.5 trillion over 10 years package. NASA got four and change billion dollars over 10 years. He had actually proposed initially almost $16 billion that included infrastructure, but also money for a second selection of a human landing system that is currently in legal limbo uh, between Blue Origin and SpaceX. And they didn't get it. So I thought that was kind of an interesting outcome. Do you have thoughts on where the congressional pushback has been on getting a second lunar lander funding to support a second lunar lander system? Is that just completely out of the cards? I think there's going to be pressure to do something. Earlier this week, I was told that there's been essentially some several million dollars in what I would say euphemistically as study money for the teams that did not get the HLS contract to kind of pacify them for the time being. We shall see. It's a st sticky wicket. It seems like uh, some of the Democrats in the House of Representatives are pretty skeptical about 
having a second selection, like looking at previous statements. And I wonder if that's why you didn't see it in the because it was the House Democrats who released the reconciliation well, draft bill with the money for NASA. Yeah, I mean, that's a, a political hot potato. I mean, I know we're the Planetary Society. We're not the Military Space Society. But yesterday on the House, <laughs> on the House side, House Armed Services Committee had sec- the Secretary of Defense, the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs, and the Commander of CENTCOM called on the carpet with, with respect to what happened in Afghanistan. And the ranking Republican is from Northern Alabama, right next to his congressional lapel pin was a Space Force pin. And the Colorado delegation had just fired off a letter saying, cease and desist, don't send this to Alabama, review it, review it, review it, review it. You were talking about the headquarters for Space Force. There's still this fight going on where it's, you know, was given- or Space uh, Command, uh, yeah. To Space yeah. Command. And the, the, the point I'm trying to make with that is, is that the ranking member from Alabama on the Armed Services Committee is a Republican. The top Coloradan is a Republican on that committee, and he wants it. It's an intra-party fight. I mean, so this whole thing about HLS, I mean, there's 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 a lot of drama going on in the space business in Washington, and it's not necessarily everyone gets this this idea that everything is Republican versus Democrat. It's much more nuanced and it's much more deep. There's the parochial aspect, and I guess in a sense, that's what happens when things happen. We're setting up new programs, new uh, armed services are coming in. All these new things are happening in space. And the establishment of new things is not necessarily an easy or straightforward process. Correct me if I'm wrong, but development of the human landing system is still on hold. Uh, uh, SpaceX may be proceeding somewhat on their own, but at least as far as NASA is concerned, it has to be held up. And, and Okay, so yes, correct your signaling to me. <laughs> And I did see that in court, apparently, attorneys for NASA have uh, had some pretty strong language for Blue Origin uh, to contest their contesting of this award to SpaceX exclusively. So um, one wonders, (laughs) as that uh, 2024 return to the moon fades even further into the distance, uh, when we're going to uh, be able to uh, launch that uh, human landing system toward its target. Yeah. Nominally, I think we're looking at a November resolution, perhaps, to some of this legal issue. But we will, uh, obviously, we will see. So, I mean, that, again, there's that's this other layer beyond the political layer, right? And so even without the funding, you can see Blue Origin pushing at, at a variety of uh, levers here to try to move that forward. Don't forget, SpaceX, Starlink, and Amazon Kuiper are having it out at the FCC. Again, that's not in our ball of wax, but this is like mobster warfare right now. (laughs) (laughs) So let's go back to our two big bills, our infrastructure and and reconciliation. So we won't go into all the ups and downs, and those are very much in debate. And I I think I, I wanted to discuss them mainly to say, when you're hearing, if anyone's listening to this and then watching the news or kind of following the news and wondering all of this debate. I think we really have to see this again through the lens of this is part of a very ambitious domestic agenda by the Biden administration trying to work through the slimmest of political majorities. That means individual senators in particular have an exceeding amount of power to sink or 
enable legislation to move through. I guess my larger point of this is that this is all happening now, but there's an additional wrinkle to this. And this is the debt ceiling, which is, I promise, connected to these things. And one more thing to keep in in track. So, Brendan, very quickly, the debt ceiling. Okay, so you and I talk about such tantalizing topics. Uh. <laughs> this is the, this so, is the yeah, the, the beautiful aspect of this is why we all get into space. Right? Yeah, yes. <laughs> so debt ceiling breach. You, you'll hear it called the debt ceiling, the debt limit, and it's basically the amount of money the U.S. government can borrow to meet Social Security commitments, Medicare, military salaries, that kind of thing. Every so often, it's like if you have a credit card and you go to your credit card company and say, hey, you know, I have a $3,000 limit. I got a big trip coming up or my kid's getting married or whatever. Can you raise it to 5000 or 10000 or something like that? That's kind of the, the quick and dirty version of, of what that is. With the one quirk being that you would go to the credit card company having already spent the money. Like that's yeah. the thing I think that's really important here is that the, the credit limit. You're obligated. You're already yeah, obligated. You've, you've already committed to spending the money. And so this is merely, it's this weird quirk that we won't go into the history of why this exists, but. It, it, it is merely to author to allow the treasury to pay for the things we've already obligated to ourselves. And it's it, it's one of those things where if we violate that, it's I think constitutionally we have to honor our debts. And it's it's this big it'd be a disaster if we didn't do it. Well, the financial markets would tank across the planet. Yeah, it would not it, be. It, <laughs> I, I, I mean, it, it, it literally Casey, you made the reference to the Constitution. That's where the term full faith and credit comes from. We, we go through this ballet in Congress every so often about raising the debt limit. And in the end, everyone kind of eventually gives up the ghost and, and votes to increase it. It was supposed to expire, I think, this week. And then uh, Secretary Yellen sent a memo to Congress saying, hey, everything's cool in the gang. We can, we can coast till October 18. That lowers the temperature for uh, congressional leaders on that issue and gives them some breathing room to address a CR, infrastructure, reconciliation, and other things. And oh, by the way, the Senate still has a ton of Biden nominations they have to confirm. Mm -hmm. But the reason why debt ceiling is particularly relevant to, again, this all trickles, we have to pop back down the stack to where this hits NASA, right? Is that it tends to be a political issue. And even though no one wants to breach it, I'd say the Republican Party now is refusing to vote to raise it, which means that the Democrats have to do it with 50 votes, which means they'd have to do it through reconciliation. And so it's a way to throw off the wheels of the reconciliation package is my understanding of it, right? Which then makes that more complicated politically for the Democrats trying to pass it, which then impacts the infrastructure bill, which then impacts NASA's infrastructure potential, right? And so it's it's a throwing a wrench into the cogs of the reconciliation process in, a, in an attempt, I would say, to stymie the Biden domestic agenda, which is why this is all, you know, the big picture of why this is all happening. Obviously not to stop NASA funding, but it's this bigger issue. Stuff, yeah, right? yeah. It, no, I mean, this is an entire political calculus and and NASA thankfully is not being held up as a hostage 
to a certain degree. All of us listening right now, we're all going to blink and we're going to find ourselves careening into the 2022 congressional election cycle. This is on the Democrat side, trying to throw a Hail Mary to get a very uh, ambitious uh, domestic agenda dragged across the finish line. On the Republican side, there are a lot of vulnerable Dems in the House and Senate that are up next year. And it's put it's trying to box them in to take terrible votes that can be used against them in little over a year from now. Yeah. Wheels within wheels, as always in DC. I mean, I mean it occurs well, in, to me in, that in, in Dune it's plots within plots, I think. Yeah. 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 Uh and you need to, the spice to find your way through. Um I, I'm reminded that the vote. Regarding the continuing resolution today, there were 35 votes against giving money to allow the United States federal government to continue working. But we have to keep in mind, those 35 senators, they probably knew this was going to pass. But now they can go back to their constituencies and say, look what I did to uh, try and be fiscally responsive responsible. It is so fascinating. Should we be pleased, at least in all of this, that through all of these machinations, NASA, space is still bipartisan. That's my cold comfort that I... (laughs) Well, let's say, so, yes, I mean, I think that's always really important, but also, again, I think it's important for us space advocates to remember how much of NASA's fortunes are tied to these broader, very intense, often extremely partisan machinations and currents that are very hard to fight against. NASA, everyone agrees NASA needs more infrastructure funding, but because it's part of this larger thing, it seems unlikely that, you know, or who knows if that'll happen. All of this is happening in the next month. That's kind of the point of why we're talking about this. Even if we get the CR extension, we still have the reconciliation and infrastructure. We still have the debt limit. And while all of this is kind of sucking up all the oxygen out of the room from Brendan, what you brought up earlier, the actual appropriations that we are general that we went and advocated for virtually at the beginning of the year, if we can think back that far, that this is I think there's a function of when things become so intense like this, is anything actually happening on the appropriation side, do you think? Or is everyone really focused on the immediate needs, uh, the political uh, intensity? Well, the the House CJS subcommittee can say they kind of did their job. They, yeah. they did their job. The second act is going to be seeing what the CJS approach subcommittee on the Senate coughs up. And then we'll have a better lay of the land. So maybe if we're lucky, we'll see something from the Senate in November. Let's say if they can one way or another, they resolve the reconciliation stuff and the debt limit. Then it seems like perhaps November might have some breathing room for the Senate to work before the CR expires in December? They'll definitely have a shot clock on them that everyone's going to be paying attention to. But again, I I still sadly go back to this uh, scenario of it would be easier. And I don't, I, I, I hate saying that. The easier thing would be, let's go to March, CR to March. Yeah. By then, Biden will have coughed up his uh, budget request to Congress for the FY23. See how that pairs. It's just uh, the situation in Congress is 
as you alluded to repeatedly, Casey, the Democrat majority is so thin and historically, whoever, whatever political party has the White House in that presidency's first term, historically, during that midterm, two years after that president takes office, that political party takes a beating in Congress, and you have a, at best, five-vote majority in the House, and you literally have a one-vote majority in the Senate. Mm-hmm. It's in extremis in terms of a Democratic uh, calculation right now. And the Republicans are kind of sitting back and just kind of eating the popcorn right now. It's a wacky situation. Of course, we, we've got the whole Space Council thing being reactivated on the executive branch side of things. So there's a lot going on. I've said it before. What a way to run a superpower. Speaking of National Space Council, is it still set to, uh, to gather again for the first time during the Biden administration uh, toward the end of the year? Well, Casey and I have been talking about this. There was efforts to have a fall meeting. And so the Space Council, for our new listeners, usually has this thing called a kind of an ancillary entity called the User Advisory Group. The Space Council is populated by the NASA administrator, the Secretary of Commerce, a lot of cabinet level officials whose departments and agencies deal with space. The user advisory group is non-governmental people who try to provide helpful input for the Space Council. Two weeks ago, word went out that they're accepting applications for the user advisory group, but the deadline for submission was September 27th. And then late last week, they said, oh no, the deadline is now October 29th. So if, if you're still going to be taking applications till essentially November and have to vet them and go through them and say, you're on the team, no, you got cut, et cetera, et cetera, I don't know how you do a, a formal space council meeting unless it's really kind of thrown together. The vice president, her plate is full with a whole bunch of other stuff, and she is the chair of the, the, the National Space Council. So I don't know how much she's able going to be able to to devote to that. So it, it may be more of something that kind of drifts into the, the new calendar year. The big takeaway is I follow this professionally and I can barely keep up with what's <sighs> happening. Brendan, you're there in person. You have a, a slightly more advantage to see the, the intense ups and downs. But we are, in a sense, going to be almost witnesses to what happens over the next few months, pushing where we can to talk about our priorities, but it's a very intense time and space is not high on the docket list, at least in the NASA area, until we get through this big thing coming up. So if you're listening and you're confused about what's happening, you're not alone and we will continue to follow this. Brendan, I want to thank you again for coming with us and explaining this today uh, we will have you back on <laughs> our, if poor, and when. our poor listeners. <laughs> Actually, just breaking news. The president is signing the CR right now. As we speak. Yeah. Wow. As we, okay. so it won't shut down. So one thing ticked off the list. We just got the other stuff to deal with. We will talk about it on future episodes of the Space Policy Edition. 
So thanks for joining us on the What is Crazy Happening in Congress special edition. <laughs> and uh, Brendan, for coming to us and, and sharing your, ex- your, your expertise and experience. Uh, I love being with you guys. Brendan, you say our poor listeners, I think that uh, they count themselves fortunate, as I do, that I uh, get to talk to both of you guys and that you are looking out for we space geeks out here uh, as uh, we try to follow and maybe even have a little bit of influence over uh, what is happening there in Washington, D.C., where you live and where you have been active, as you said, for over 20 years. Um, Thank you so much for all you do and for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Casey, I think we can wrap this one up, uh, maybe by reminding everybody again, you've just heard a more than adequate demonstration of why it is so important to have representation there within the Beltway, and uh, we are happy to provide that based on your support. Planetary.org slash join is where you can become a member if you're not already. If you are already, then thank you so much for uh, enabling these two guys to continue to represent our interests there uh, and uh, report back to us on uh, on everything that's going on and, and help us try, at least try, to understand it. Casey, you can get the final word here. <laughs> well, thanks, Matt. And we will be back in November and we will see if the uh, Congress is still standing by that point and what we will we'll cover that and we'll go into a deeper, more fun, broad policy topic, I think, for that one, too. Casey Dreyer and Brendan Curry, the policy and politics people and advocacy folks uh, at the Planetary Society. Uh, Once again, thanks for joining us. I will be with you, of course, every week with the uh, weekly Planetary Radio. Comes out every Wednesday morning. We've got some great stuff coming up. Hope you will be back with us again. Uh, We think, we hope, on the first Friday in November to talk more uh, on the Space Policy Edition of Planetary Radio. Thanks again for joining us at Astro. 